Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? We hope you're relaxing over the holidays. Maybe you've got time to read a book or two. Just in case, we've got some suggestions for you. Three books, all recommended by people who are passionate about the environment and preoccupied with climate change. And all books with a recurring theme that individuals can make a difference. It's a special books edition of What on Earth? Let's get started. Hi, my name is Catherine Hayhoe. I'm a climate scientist at Texas Tech University. The book I'm recommending is called All We Can Save, Truth, Courage, and Solutions for the Climate Crisis. And it features the voices of over 50 female climate leaders, including scientists like me, artists, poets, lawyers, businesswomen, architects, and more. I chose this book for a couple of different reasons. First of all, women and children are uniquely vulnerable to climate impacts. Incorporating women's ideas and input into traditionally male-dominated environments broadens the scope of possible solutions. The climate crisis is a leadership crisis. So how insane is it to leave at least half the brain power out of the conversation, right? Lastly, though, and perhaps most importantly, I love this book because in a day and age when it seems our society is just fragmenting into smaller and smaller pieces, this book is a call to come together over what matters most, All We Can Save. One of the contributors to All We Can Save is Leah Stokes. She's an assistant professor specializing in energy, climate, and environmental politics at the University of California in Santa Barbara. Her essay is called A Field Guide for Transformation. Hello there. Oh, hi. Thanks so much for having me on. Now, you start your essay by recalling things you did in your childhood and your youth in the name of helping or saving the planet, and and you grew up in Toronto. So give me some sense of of what things you did and why. Yeah, so I grew up in North York, uh, in Don Mills specifically. That's where my grandparents uh, lived, too. Uh, And along with a bunch of my friends, what we would do is during our lunch hour in fifth grade, Rather than going out and playing recess, we became totally obsessed with these tiny little milk cartons that you used to get at school and how they couldn't be recycled. And so my friends and I would wash them out and cut them up so that they could lie flat. And then my friend would take them home and she would put them into the home municipal recycling system so that we could avoid these milk cartons going to the landfill. And then when I was in high school, uh, I got very obsessed with Longos and how that's the grocery store and how they were selling Chilean sea bass, also called Patagonian toothfish. And this was considered a sort of threatened species at the time that was overfished and that we shouldn't be eating. And so I wrote letters asking them to stop selling this species. Um, So those are some of the early activism in my sort of high school and, and grade school days. Did it work? I can't I can't imagine it did work, though, no, because as I talk about in the essay, 
the goal has got to be getting beyond yourself as as much as possible. And, and I don't think these uh, steps were quite big enough, although I guess they're laudable for being a grade school kid at the time. Well, what made you take up activism with such fervor? Well, you know, I was an undergraduate at the University of Toronto, and at that time, I ran an energy conservation campaign where we tried to get people to save energy in their dorms. And the program affected thousands of students living on campus. And we ended up saving about 10% of the electricity, which was a huge number. But after that experience, I just thought this isn't big enough. You know, the climate problem is such a big problem. And sure, I saved some electricity at the margins here, but I've got to get so much bigger and I've got to try to affect government policy in order to really drive down carbon emissions. And if you want to affect government policy, you kind of got to become an activist. And an academic. <laughs> I uh, mean, yes. it's, it's clear that this isn't. This is not just though your work as an academic. It, it's clear to me this is a passion project for you. I'm wondering what advice you give to others who who are simply trying to do the right thing. Well, you know, a lot of my friends and family are, of course, Canadian, and. What I, one thing I notice is how concerned about the climate crisis Canadians are. And that's not just my anecdotal experience. I've actually done research with colleagues at the University of Montreal, which shows that Canadians are more worried about climate change than Americans. So one thing I would say to people is to try to get involved in policy and politics. You know, write a letter to your member of parliament or uh, your member of provincial parliament and say, like, hey, I would really like you to take on the climate crisis with more fervor. So I think that there's so much that we can get our governments to be doing. And especially in this economic crisis, it's a great opportunity to be rebuilding the Canadian economy with, you know, more jobs in mind, because the clean energy economy is really the future. Now, you, you write in your essay that you try to talk about climate change every day with someone other than your cat. <laughs> and I'm, I'm wondering why. Yes. You know, I just think that too few people understand that climate change is happening now and they think it's something in the future that won't affect them. And Catherine Hayhoe, another Canadian climate researcher, you know, she gave a TED talk where she said the number one thing you can do on climate change is talk about it. And I've really adopted that same view that People don't understand that climate change is affecting them now. If you think about the heat waves that we've been experiencing, the record fires out west in British Columbia and really all across the western coast of um, North America, you know, these are climate change in action. Sometimes we have these crazy rainfall events now where we get extreme precipitation. And that is something that climate scientists have been telling us will happen because of climate change. Now, this book features contributions only from women involved in the fight against climate change in one form or another. And I'm wondering why you think it's important for women's voices or views to be to be highlighted. I think that women talk about climate change often in different ways than men. Unfortunately, the climate discourse has been very dominated by wealthy white men in North America, mostly the United States. And that doesn't represent 
all the people around the world, especially those on the front lines of impacts, whether that's in the United States, which is often black, Hispanic and indigenous Americans or all around the world, you know, people living in small island nations or in Bangladesh. Uh, you know, there's so many people who are really on the front lines of these climate impacts and their voices don't get heard. So Ayana and Catherine, who edited the book, were really intentional about wanting to get a much more diverse array of Americans working on these issues uh, to speak up. And I think that the voices end up being more complex. They focus more on equity, for example, in the solutions, as opposed to thinking about the silver bullet of a price on carbon and not considering how that will affect low income and communities of color. I feel like the climate movement needs to diversify and bring in a lot more voices. And when we do that, the kinds of stories that get told will be um, different and more complex. All right, Leah, this is a bit, this is, I'm springing this on you a bit, but since this is our books episode, I'm wondering if you have any recommendations for must read books on climate change that have come out in the past year, except this one, of course. <laughs> Yeah, well, I actually run a little book club on Twitter called Climate Book Club, and we read all kinds of books. Um, I don't know if it's exactly in the last year, but there's a great book called Rising, uh, Notes from the New American Shore, I think. It's by Elizabeth Rush, and I think it was shortlisted for the Pulitzer. It's a nonfiction book of what it's like on the coastlines all across the United States and how sea level rise is already reshaping landscapes, communities, people, livelihoods. Really beautiful read, um, wonderfully written. I'd highly recommend uh, Rising. All right, we will look it up. Leah Stokes, thank you very much. Happy holidays. Yes, happy holidays to you too. Leah Stokes is an assistant professor specializing in energy, climate, and environmental politics at the University of California in Santa Barbara. She is one of three Canadians who contributed to the book, All We Can Save. Hi, I'm Severin Cullis Suzuki on Haida Gwaii, and you're listening to What on Earth? My pick for the climate read of 2020 is Seth Klein's A Good War, mobilizing Canada for a climate emergency. Here's a bold and practical plan for Canada to confront climate change at a scale that's actually appropriate for an existential threat. The best part of this book is that it shows that Canada has done it before. In World War II, Canada rose to the occasion. How? By transforming its economy and rallying all Canadians to be part of stopping a force that threatened the world. Totally recommended for anyone who doubts that Canada has a capacity to confront a massive threat like climate change. Yes, we can, because we've done it before. A Good War came out this fall. Seth Klein is with me now to talk about how a wartime approach could be a roadmap for Canada's approach to the climate crisis. Hello. Hi, Laura. Why a wartime approach to climate change? Well, uh, Severn sums it up pretty nicely there. Um, first of all, because they're, they're both existential threats. Secondly, we need a wartime approach because what we've been doing for the last two to three decades isn't working. Uh, the best we've managed to do is uh, flatline our greenhouse gas emissions. They're not going down. Uh, we've run out the clock with distracting debates about incremental changes, and so we need something new and bold that can achieve something remarkable in the next 10 years. 
And uh, third, because as, as Severin says, it is this hopeful reminder uh, taken from our own past that we've done this before. Uh, we have moved with remarkable speed and scale uh, when, when the moment required it. Now, I, I, when I think of a, of a war effort, I, I've, I've never actually had to live through anything like the First or Second World War, but I certainly have read and seen um, the ideas of the, the, the great old posters and, and the wartime machinery ramping up and people going to work and vi building victory gardens. What would this kind of, of war effort, in quotation marks, what would it look like here in Canada? Well, thankfully, it looks it looks different from an actual war in that uh, no one's asking anybody to sacrifice their lives or, or, or go overseas. Uh, the work that we have to do is here at home. And, and that's the part of the World War II story that I'm most drawing upon, is this uh, dramatic transformation that happened on the home front, and in particular, this ramp up of military production. What happened then in the space of only six years was incredible uh, from a base of almost nothing uh, in terms of military production. Canada produced uh, 800,000 military vehicles, more than Germany and Italy and Japan combined, 16,000 military aircraft, ultimately producing the fourth largest air force in the world, about 700 ships. Um, and you know all of that transformation had to happen quickly at the front end as we ramped up. And then actually we had to retool the economy a second time as everybody uh, uh, reintegrated into a peacetime economy. And so that's, that's a helpful reminder uh, of what we're capable of. Now, climate change still seems far off and abstract to many people. And I'm wondering how you change people's perspective on that and rally public appetite for an ambitious response when it does seem that far away. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting point because I, I think in the rearview mirror, most of us assume that in the Second World War, uh, everyone understood the threat to be clear and present and was ready to rally right out, right out of the gate. And that's not true. Uh, this was a, a, a weary population that had only recently been through World War I and the Great Depression. And the threat was on the other side of two oceans. Um, and so... And, and this sort of comes back to your earlier point. It actually took leadership and, and ubiquitous messaging to get the public on board um, and to, to ultimately uh, rally everyone for the kind of mobilization uh, that was necessary. I think it's, it's true that climate, to a certain extent, you know, its curse is that it moves in slow motion, and so the threat seems a little far away. But I think the terrain has actually shifted quite a lot in the last two years, where climate has moved from being a threat sometime in the future, somewhere else, to here and now. And, and you see that reflected in the polling. Right. You, you have a number of polls in there that, that you say shows a stunning response to people's beliefs about how, to, how the need to tackle climate change and what should be done about it. Um, I'm also interested in what you said about ubiquitous messaging, and I want to come back to that in a minute. But, but first, I want to talk about the pandemic, because since you wrote A Good War, it's become a focus of all of our daily lives. You, you in fact, wrote an epilogue about COVID in April after the book had been sent off for copy editing. I'm wondering how the pandemic has affected your perspective on what's possible on climate change? Well, like this historic example of the war, 
it's an it's yet another reminder of how quickly we're capable of moving in ways that surprised us um and uh you know in some ways it complicates what we now need to do on climate because uh, certainly all other issues have have moved off the front burner but i also think it sets us up well in some ways for what we now need to do we have a newfound appreciation for science and the role of scientists uh, we have a new level of social solidarity, I think, that we haven't seen in a few generations. Um, more cooperation uh, politically than we've seen for some time. A new appreciation for the role of government and, and public services. That all sets us up well. And importantly, we've seen that in the face of when a government actually gets into emergency mode, it's capable of spending what you have to spend to confront that emergency. So I actually emerge from both you know, my study of, of the Second World War and this pandemic experience where, with a, a sense that there's really four markers that when a government is in emergency mode, they spend what it takes to win. They create new economic institutions to get the job done. They move from voluntary measures to mandatory measures as needed. And they tell the truth. They speak about the severity of the crisis. And I actually think we've seen the federal government model all four of those things with respect to the pandemic. They modeled all of them in the Second World War, but they have decidedly not done any of those things yet when it comes to the climate emergency. To be seen. Yeah. Okay. I, I want to talk to you about the media's role in addressing climate change. You write that the CBC's coverage of climate change has been weak, which is your word. How would you like to see media coverage of the subject change at the CBC and other media outlets? Well, so first of all, hearkening back to the war, as I as I always do now, you know, is it was it was very good luck that just three years before the Second World War, we created the CBC, and the CBC had reach it, through its radio service to uh, about eighty five percent of Canadians by the time the war broke out, and that meant that it played a key role in that marshalling of public opinion that I was that I was referring to earlier, and everybody heard the daily updates uh, from the CBC. It was, it was actually the voice of Lauren Green, who, who would later go on and become a famous Hollywood actor. But during the war, he was uh, affectionately known to Canadians as the voice of doom. Every day, we heard from him uh, with reports from the front lines and, 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 and rallying us. Um, I think we need that from media generally, but especially the CBC again. Uh, you know, my my point is, that I make in the book is that if the, if our morning radio shows uh, can give us hourly uh, business and sports report, then give us a morning climate emergency report, a daily report. Tell us how this is going, not just on the home front, but what other the people of goodwill are doing in this fight around the world, our allies in this, just as, they, as you did that. Um, shows like yours... I think are starting to help uh, in terms of providing that information. Although, uh, you know, forgive me if I sound like an Im impolite guest, but but even your show, I would say, the, the the tone and tenor is a bit incongruous with where we find ourselves at this late hour. In How so? terms of, in terms of communicating a sense of emergency. Um, so we want that information to be factual and, and science-based, as your show certainly is. Um, but 
it's it's striking that uh, you know. For, let me give you an example. In in the case of the Guardian newspaper, out of the UK, I think sets the standard here, and and they no longer use the terminology around uh, climate change anymore. They talk about climate emergency, climate crisis, climate breakdown. The CBC brass has uh, has not wanting to implement the same policy as that because they fear that it has a, a whiff of advocacy about it. Um, You're taking those and, words from Paul Hamilton, who is our CBC's Director of Journalistic Standards. And I, I am. And I checked with him before I spoke to you, and he stands by those comments. He says that those are accurate. Right. And, and what I would say is, and, and this was true of the CBC and all of the media in the Second World War, which is, yes, you should be accurate and, and, and fact-based, but in the face of a civilizational threat, you, you pick a damn side. Um, and and that this fear of being seen as non-neutral in the face of an existential threat strikes me as odd. We could go really far down this <laughs> path with this. I'm, <laughs> I'm so scared that we don't have the time. Um, but but you, you okay, you've talked about the CBC. I want, I want to hear what you have to say about other media outlets. Well, um, I mean, the private media also have an important role to play. And, and there, too, and, the, you know, there, there's this wonderful story I tell in the book about uh, the role of Edward R. Murrow and the CBS news team during the war. So at the, at the beginning of the war, when Canada declared war, two years ahead of the United States, the majority of U.S. public opinion did not favor joining the war. By the time Pearl Harbor happened two years later, um, they had already witnessed a 20 percentage point shift in U.S. public opinion. And many people credit Edward R. Murrow and his CBS colleagues as being instrumental to that shift um, in terms of how they told the story from the front lines and invited a public to think about who we all wanted to be in that moment. And I think we need that again. Uh, so... We desperately need the media to do a better job, I'm not critiquing CBC here, but as you say, all media, to connect the dots between extreme weather events and, and, uh, and their roots in, in the climate crisis, but also rally us and give us a sense of agency about a change that has to happen, and also name when the policy response is inadequate. Uh, a large chunk of my book has to do with um, unpacking this this concept I call the new climate denialism, which is not the same as you know Donald Trump's or Maxime Bernier's denialism of just denying human induced climate change, but the new climate denialism is when you say you get the science, but you practice a policy agenda that doesn't align with what the science says we have to do, and our, all of our politicians are doing this right. They say they get it. And yet they double down on fossil fuel infrastructure expansion and so on. And the, the media needs to name that. I, I, at the risk of sounding defensive. <laughs> I will say that what we were trying to do on the show is do exactly that. And in fact, more, most recently, we scrutinized the federal government's new legislation on climate targets and um, gave it the once over. And so uh, I, I think that, that what we're trying to do on the show is what some of what you're talking about. I think you are, and I'm 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 thrilled that your show has, has exists and has been launched by the CBC. Um, mostly, what I'm saying is, I, I actually think if if the CBC 
saw the climate crisis as the true existential and urgent threat that it is the way it did during the war. All of our flagship news shows on the CBC radio and TV would carve out that space on a daily basis to, to do what I'm laying out here. I, I want to switch gears a little bit here. I want to talk about optimism. Looking back at this year and all that's happened, I'm wondering where you see reasons for optimism that we might see strong climate action in the coming years. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do, I do see signs of that. Uh, you know, we, it seems like a lifetime ago through this pandemic, but right up until the pandemic struck, I, I think we were seeing a wind change. Uh, and the momentum was really building. I mean, a little over a year ago, we saw this youth-led climate strike day with a million odd Canadians on the streets. That is, as near as I can tell, the largest single day of protest in Canadian history. We saw these incredible uh, solidarity actions in support of the Wet'suwet'en just just after that. Um, these these events are are shifting the terrain, and we've started to see extreme weather events register in terms of a majority of Canadians now seeing the climate crisis as an emergency. And that was reflected, I think, in the federal election results and so on. So the challenge now is to is to recapture some of that momentum. But, you know, whenever you ask me about about hope and optimism, part of what I'm trying to do in the book is uh, tell the truth uh, in a similar way as, as, as leaders did in the Second World War, which is to walk a very careful line between being forthright about the severity of the crisis and challenge that we face, and yet still communicate uh, some hope that we are up to this task. And the reality is all of us, who anyone who listens to your show and wrestles with what the science is saying, we all wrestle with despair about whether or not we're actually able to do this in time. Um, and there's no sugarcoating that. We don't know if we're going to be able to do this in time. Um, but again, I take solace from this World War II story that I tell in the book, which is at that time, from a population of a little over 11 million, over a million Canadians enlisted, it's, it's a remarkable figure. Um, what they didn't know is whether or not they would win. Um, we know how that story ended, but they didn't. And they did it anyway. And that's the spirit I think we need today. All right, Seth, this is our book recommendation show. And so my last question is, do you have any other recommendations for a must-read book on climate change from the past year? Well, I know I'm biased, but uh, how about On Fire? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was waiting for that. <laughs> Tell- I, I, and uh, um, so Naomi Klein's uh, book, On Fire, the, the Burning Case for the Green New Deal. I know I'm biased, but it's also true for anyone who wants to know how that uh, struggle is unfolding. Not just, uh, you know, my story is a very Canadian story, and Naomi tells how that story is unfolding around the world, and it's a very good read. And for that small percentage of people who may not know, Naomi is your sister. <laughs> she is my sister. <gasps> All right. And Seth. a much better writer than I. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Seth, I, I wish you and your family a safe and, and happy holiday. And thank you for talking to me. Thanks, you too. 
Seth Klein is the author of A Good War, Mobilizing Canada for the Climate Emergency. Hi, I'm Sandra Bartlett. I produced the Salmon People podcast about the fight to save wild salmon. Now I'm back with The Poison Detectives, a podcast about a nasty chemical that's poisoning the world. Yes, poisoning the world. It's a man-made chemical family called PFAS, and there are more than 12,000 chemicals in this family. It's in the material that firefighting suits are made from, and one woman went on a quest to find out if it gave her firefighter husband cancer. Our last pick for this week came to us from a 13-year-old Canadian climate activist. My name is Sophia Mather, and I'm from Sudbury, Ontario. I would like to recommend the book Protectors of the Planet, Environmental Trailblazers from 7 to 97 by the Canadian author Jamie Bastido. Several chapters spoke to me and gave me inspiration. As a young female Canadian concerned about the environment, the chapter on Elizabeth May was motivating. She made huge strides for all environmentalists and confirmed to me that cooperating with politicians and experts is a path forward to achieving a sustainable world. Sheila Wakuchi's story on protecting the Arctic is a great Canadian example on the importance of protecting cultures of all people. Our change in climate is disproportionately affecting indigenous and rural cultures and we must respect and address this horrific consequence. Full disclosure, I am honored to have a chapter in this book. I also celebrate with other amazing Canadian youth highlighted, including Rupert and Franny from BC. This book is a must read to educate and inspire ourselves to once again make Canadians world leaders in protecting our planet. Protectors of the Planet is written for readers of all ages, and author Jamie Bastido is with me now. Hello. Hello, Laura. It's a real honor to welcome you into my carefully sanitized home office. <laughs> and, and wasn't that lovely to hear Sophia off the top? So passionate. Now, you are a biologist and a naturalist, and I'm wondering what inspired you to write a book about environmental activists. Well, it's people like Sophia that really get my heart uh, beating and, and uh, just really pumped about doing things. I think all of us, especially now, dare I say, within a global pandemic, we're, we're kind of ping-ponging between these, what I call the three Ds, despair, depression, doomism. And uh, I wanted this book to move people in the other direction, more towards hope and help and, and, and indeed happiness. These people that are in the book, I, I get a lot of joy about reading their stories and, and their enthusiasm, their, their hope is, is quite infectious. Now, you profile 12 people in your book, and, and some are well-known. Um, we ho- heard Sophia there mention Elizabeth May, who is the first and now former leader of the federal Green Party. Others not so well-known. And you explore, I guess we could call the making of these environmentalists. What similarities did you find between them? Well, I think, um, I think the main thing, the main commonality, even though they have wildly different paths. You know, we have people here eight, literally ranging from age seven to 97. Uh, look at Sophia. She's been born into two generations of climate activists. And there's Sheila Watt-Cloutier, who grew up uh, on the back of a comet going across the frozen Arctic ice. A very, very different paths leading to their 
activism, but it was interesting to tease out things that they do have in common. Uh, they all kind of share a dream for a better world, uh, a deep desire to realize that dream, uh, willingness to roll up their sleeves and work hard. Uh, Elizabeth May calls hope as a verb with the sleeves rolled up. And I think they all share that. It's definitely a commonality. And I think in some ways they've all drunk the same Kool-Aid, which has granted them this deep and abiding and, and I think most importantly, infectious belief in the power of one the power of individuals to make a difference in this big, beautiful and, and hurting world. These are some of the threads that I kind of teased out among the fascinating array of awesome characters, really, in this book. Now, you spoke to Inuit environmental advocate Silawat Cloutier, as you, as you just mentioned, for the book. The Arctic is warming faster than anywhere else on Earth. And I'm wondering what impact uh, the stories that she told, ha what impact did that have on you? Well, I call myself a naturalist, but I think for, for Sila, it was a real uh, eye-opener, I, I think sincerely a heart-opener to hear her story and the intimacy of her relationship with the land. She, I, I would ask others in the book, so how did your interest in nature begin? And they'd tell stories of being out at their grandmother's farm or whatever, but but Sila, you know, it really prompted uh, almost a laugh from her because she says that, you know, as Inuit, you're born into nature and you're out there constantly. Uh, so it's, it was a very, very moving process to, to talk with her and to write her story. And I think my relationships with all of these people has been one of the, the lasting fruits of this process for me personally. We've already talked a little bit about Sophia Mather. She's the one who recommended your book to us. She is, as I said, a 13-year-old climate activist from Sudbury, and she is in the book. I actually met Sophia when I interviewed her just about a year ago on her way back from New York, um, where she was taking part in climate activism. I'm wondering, I was pretty impressed by her. What, what did you find most inspiring about Sophia? <laughs> She really just just hearing her voice gets gets my heart thumping. As I said, uh, there's a kind of fearlessness about uh, Sophia, and this again, this infectious belief in the power of one that is inspiring for me. And she was out there uh, starting the first kind of Fridays for Future school strike in Canada. So she's very much part of this this homegrown. Uh, youth quake, I think, as Time Magazine called it, to really uh, shake uh, the adult rafters and and get us acting and and uh, believing and you know uh, walking the talk. Right, because at the end of every chapter, it's not just to profiles. You have a, a list of what you call trailblazer tips from each person you profile, um, and and these are ideas about what other people can do. And I'm wondering what were the best pieces of advice that you heard. Well, let's go back to Sophia again. Uh, she says, you know, don't forget the fun stuff, for instance, and, and how these big issues in the past, like civil rights, women's rights, peace movement, they've been so buttressed and, and propelled and fueled by things like art and music and songs. Sophia uses dance as part of her toolkit. Uh, she says things like this can help the climate movement too, and, and it's lots of fun. Uh, Sila, she says, uh, 
And this really appeals to me as a naturalist. She says, in our swirling, hurting, fast-changing world, it's all the more important to take time and get out on the land uh, to reconnect yourself with what's real, what's important. So those are those are a couple of tips. You know, find the human face in climate change. Again, Sila is is very adept at doing this. For me. Uh, the change makers that you meet and, and uh, protectors of the planet, uh, honestly, are some of the most optimistic, cheerful, uh, hopeful people I've, I've ever come to know. And uh, I now see them as kind of a band of merry activists, <laughs> hell bent on saving the world. And, and that's, you know, that's high adventure. Uh, I just feel so enriched from getting to know these people. And I just hope that when people read this book, they find that same connection, that, that sense of adventure and, and sense of possibility. Well, Mary is the right word for the season, so good, good for you to conjure <laughs> that. Um, Jamie, it's actually your turn now. This is our book recommendation episode, so I'm wondering if you have read any other books about climate change this year that you would recommend to listeners. Well, uh, the first one that comes to mind is Sheila Watt Cloutier's book, The Right to Be Cold. The Right to Be Cold. It's just an, an, uh, an amazing, like I say, a very intimate look into the changes of her world in the Arctic and how important it is to connect the Arctic world as a kind of uh, early warning system to the rest of the planet. Okay. Jamie Bastido, thank you very much, and, and the best of the holiday season to you. And the same to you, Laura. It's a real thrill and an honor to, uh, to speak with you. Jamie Bastido is the author of Protectors of the Planet, Environmental Trailblazers from 7 to 97. We hope you get a chance to read at least one of the books mentioned on the show, and of course, we hope you continue listening to us in the new year. We wish you all the best in 2021 or at least better than 2020. That does it for us this week and for this year, thanks to our What on Earth team, associate producer Rachel Sanders and Jen Van Evra, producers Lisa Johnson and Molly Siegel. Our technician is Matthias Wolfson. Monisha Janakaram is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.